Welcome to the DTB podcast for November 2020, volume 58, number 11. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, which we are recording at uh, the beginning of October. Uh, how are things with you, James? Interesting. We've definitely seen an uptick in febrile illness. We're not yet sure whether it's COVID or just the normal October coughs and colds, but we've certainly now begun to enter the winter of discontent, perhaps. So interesting times for us. We're having to look at hot hot rooms and cold rooms and, and really sort of batten down the hatches. So yes, interesting times for me. But not back to where we were at the height of the pandemic. Oh, nowhere near. Although, of course, the difficulty I think we've got now is at the height of the pandemic, people stayed at home because they put everything down to COVID. Now I think people are sort of used to COVID. And so now we're getting people who are, you know, phoning up and saying they've got a sore throat. They're quite convinced they've got tonsillitis. And yet when we see them, it's very clear that, you know, there is no tonsillitis and actually it probably is COVID. So that's, that's the difference for us. We're having to be much, much tighter with our triaging of patients we see. And then when we do see anyone who's got any sort of febrile illness or, or any symptom that might be related to COVID, we need to be fully PPE'd up and in the hot room, which we then have to wipe down afterwards and, and everything like that. So, yes, interesting times. Okay, yep, sounds like a challenging few weeks ahead of you. Okay, so um, in this recording, we'll give a quick overview of the editorial, uh, talk about a DTB select item, and discuss the main review article and chat a bit about the case report. Let's start with the editorial, James, in which you discuss the National Institute for Health and Social Care's draft guideline on chronic pain. You've called it chronic pain analgesia Armageddon. Why? I think um, anyone who read the draft guidance was taken aback, really, by just really how unnice uh, seemed to throw everything out of the window. Now, I think it's important that we we just recognise what they were doing here. So this was a this is a draft guidance looking at the management of chronic pain, which is pain that's persists or occurs for longer than three months. But it's looking at both pain that's caused by conditions such as arthritis and also chronic primary pain and when it comes to chronic primary pain nice is basically saying that all the analgesias that we use all the other drugs such as benzodiazepines gabapentinoids none of them are effective and they should not be used in the management of chronic primary pain but it is that important distinction which i think has caused a bit of upset in the medical and lay press that they're talking about specifically about chronic primary pain as a subset of chronic pain as a, as a whole, and that their guideline, which is, as you say, advocating almost no therapy, no pharmacological interventions, is focused purely on chronic primary pain? Well, this is it. This is exactly it. And I think, you know, I'm guilty of this as myself when I first read it. And I think in fairness, the, the scoping document did say, and I quote, there is no medical intervention, pharmacological or non-pharmacological, that is helpful for more than a minority of people with chronic pain. So you felt that they were talking about all pain, but actually it was chronic primary pain where they've really thrown everything out uh, of the window. So it's important we obviously understand that distinction, but I guess it's also important that we understand how much is chronic primary pain, a diagnosis or a label, that primary care is comfortable with. 
I totally agree. And I think most people in primary care haven't really made that distinction yet. Having read the guidance, I actually went on to our clinical system to see if I could use that diagnosis. And the system doesn't recognize it yet as a diagnosis of chronic primary pain. So there's a lot of catching up to be done, uh, I think, regarding this and really getting our heads around. This is another sea change in um, the management of a condition. We're now moving much more to a biopsychosocial model here where we look at a much more holistic approach rather than just treating the pain as if it was a completely isolated identity. But as ever, when you've got a sea change like this, and we've seen it before with uh, benzodiazepines and sleeping disorders, you will end up with two cohorts, a new cohort of patients for whom you can introduce the new regime and say, right, we're not using analgesia. But then you'll be left with a whole cohort of patients who are used to their analgesia, who, if they were started now, wouldn't get it, but you've still got to manage those. Yes, and I think that's that's so often the way with a lot of um, conditions we manage that you end up actually having a whole set of long-term conditions which are actually medication associated, not just disease associated. So we watch with interest, see when, I, when it publishes its final guideline, whether it's steered away from this, but very much you're hoping it'll stay with this approach. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think we all recognise that the WHO ladder for analgesia and the and the sort of pain clinic approach which is just stepping up medication again and again and again has has not helped a lot of patients and we must be much more clinically accurate in our diagnosis for patients with pain and then be much better at managing them properly okay thank you very much this month one of our dtb select items highlights an nhs safety alert and the use of steroid emergency cards. James, do you want to talk a bit about this one? Yes, I, you know, I was looking, I was trying to find when steroid cards were first introduced because certainly all my life, they've been the same little foldable blue card that sometimes you can find tucked away in a drawer somewhere in the surgery. But this is, um, I think, very timely. Uh, the National Reporting and Learning System for the NHS has picked up about 300 or so incidents over the last two years. There were four deaths uh, and four admissions related to adrenal crises. And uh, one of the issues was that a lot of these patients were not carrying their steroid card. So a new one has been introduced, which is um, nice and red bordered, um, and it actually details the management of an adrenal crisis for the attending physician in case that's an issue. So I think this is a bit of work that might be quite useful for our clinical pharmacists to think about in the PCNs, primary care networks, and in practices. You know, have we made sure that all our patients at risk of an adrenal crisis actually are carrying a steroid card? I think it's still slightly interesting that we still want a piece of paper and um, you'd have thought that an app might be more sensible, but I suppose we can always take pictures of our, our steroid card and have those on, on, on our phones. I mean, that's a good point, and it's, it instructs me, that, particularly at the moment, how are we going to get these bits of paper to patients who need them? We've got no, if we're issuing our prescriptions electronically and they're going straight to the pharmacy, then there's lost, less of an opportunity for the practices to issue it with the prescription. So then it comes down to the, to the pharmacies to, to issue them. But as you say, why aren't we doing it electronically? Why aren't we making it available as a download that you just have on your phone and show it to people um, rather than having a bit of paper that might be in a wallet or might not? 
and by usually by the time you put it out is is kind of gone dogged and, and it is hard to read yes and i think another thing that we're missing here is that um we now have enhanced access to the spine and um that should be available to clinicians in most settings so one of the other elements to this which hasn't been mentioned which i think is really important would be that if if we can ensure that we've spoken to our patients and advise them that we would suggest that they they allow uh, enhanced access to their records then that actually would ensure that clinicians over the whole of the uk would have access to their information and will that go between primary and secondary care or just primary care no this is the great joy if you get if with with the spine it's there available for secondary and primary care and but but it, it, the way it works is that it at the lowest level you just have a details of drugs you're taking i think and i think and allergies and that's it but if you go for the enhanced level all the disease codes are in place there so if you've recorded that they have a risk of um, adrenal crisis or if you just recorded that they hold a steroid card then that will be flagged up by by the clinicians in A&E or wherever that might be. And certainly these electronic solutions to bits of paper ought to be the way forward. Indeed and I, and I always like looking at um, the forms and seeing how little space they give you to actually put the information in it. <laughs> so of course steroid cards the world over have always been scribbled on in the most sort of difficult way because the space for things like NHS numbers is tiny. Okay, thank you very much. Um, our main article this month is a review of the diagnosis and treatment of orthostatic hypertension. Uh, brief highlights? Well, it's, it's, I, I love this. This is, I, I think we miss orthostatic hypertension a lot in general practice. I don't think... Um, we check for it, and I think that this very nice review from the gang up at Populations Health Sciences in Newcastle have pointed out that uh, in a meta-analysis, 22% of elderly community dwellers and almost a quarter of institutionalised elderly patients have orthostatic hypertension. So we're missing it, and not only does it cause the classic dizziness, which perhaps we would pick up, it also causes fatigue, cognitive impairment, falls, dementia, and all-cause mortalities increase. So I think it's one of these things where I think we should be much, much more alert to this. We need to be actually, particularly elderly patients, checking their blood pressure, standing as well as sitting. And one of the things that comes out of this article is that they say, you know, don't worry about tilt tables. Actually, what they call active stand is an entirely acceptable way of checking for this. So that's literally just check someone's blood pressure with them sitting and then ask them to stand and check their blood pressure again, preferably within 60 seconds, which is easy because you keep the cuff on and you just check it again. And, and it's simple to do. And the number of elderly patients I pick up who actually have quite significant postural drops in their blood pressure, you know, it, it, what you will find is you start to de-prescribe um, drugs and this is a really good article explains which are the best medications to stop first talks about the really important issues around lifestyle in managing these patients and it also talks about supine hypertension which actually affects 50 percent of patients with orthostatic hypotension so it's a really really interesting article one of those ones which i think everyone should read because i think it's it's really helpful and interestingly there is a little bit on on actually drug treatment of uh, the problem but but actually that's very much towards the end of the whole process yeah 
it, it's a really useful review of flutrocortisone and midradine, which is you know really helpful and explains that you know that actually the evidence base for both of those is pretty poor, and we probably shouldn't be starting those in primary care because they actually also have quite a big side effect profile that we need to be aware of. Okay, thank you. Uh, and finally, this month the case report. This one's medication-related osteonecrosis of the mandible and maxilla. And what were the medications in this case? Yes, gosh, this is a this is a case report that you wouldn't wish on anyone. This was a case report of a 73-year-old woman who had, in the end, bilateral breast cancer and was being treated with zolendronic acid and later denosumab initially to prevent uh, osteoporotic fractures and later obviously for the treatment of their breast cancer. And she developed really a really very nasty osteonecrosis of the jaw with fistulas and um, really had a huge impact on her life, I think. And I think it's just really timely to remember that these drugs do cause osteonecrosis of the jaw, particularly when they're being used in the management of cancers and patients need a dental check before starting them. Um, and I think, you know, with what's going on at the moment with COVID and difficulties accessing medical care, I think it's really important that we don't drop the baton here when it comes to making sure patients get proper care and they get their dental check. And for me, this was this was the important point for this, wasn't it? That you know, we hear so much about or we see the MHRA warnings. We read about it in safety alerts about being alert to osteonecrosis caused by bisphosphonates but here's a real example of what it does and, and what it what it looks like and, and a kind of sobering reminder that it, you know this is pretty serious yes and they talk about the risk in in cancer patient exposed to denosumab or zolendronic acid of around anything between i think 0.7 and two percent so you know one in 50 risk of this in patients and that grows with time on the drug and I was quite surprised actually about the median time as well. I, I imagine these would be patients who were taking it for a prolonged period, but actually the median time was two years with zolendronic acid. So I, I, you know, I think we just need to be really alert to this, you know, jaw pain, loosening of teeth, you know, anything that you that might be indicative of osteonecrosis, the jaw, we need to be very alert to. And certainly with, as you say, access to dental serv services maybe being more restricted than, than usual, um, it probably is, is an early red flag, isn't it, for, for any calls you get about jaw pain? De absolutely, yeah, definitely. Okay, thank you very much. You can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. Uh, we would certainly love to hear from you. You can find a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, you can email us directly at dtb at bmj.com. Many thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us for December's podcast. Mm -hmm.